News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for our weekly wrap-up of all things going on south of the border. And it seems to me that every week when we do this, the list just keeps getting longer and longer. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, joins us now. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. All right, let's start with this kind of developing story this morning, this Syria drone strike uh, by the United States. What has happened here? So ultimately, what we understand is that the president, in consultation with his national security team, uh, well, he was actually on the ground in Ottawa, authorized for the Pentagon to carry out uh, a a precision-targeted strike in Syria, and that followed what had uh, been an Iranian or believed to be an Iranian uh, uh, drone attack on an American base in Syria, killing an American contractor, wounding five others. This is up in and around uh, the Syrian border with Iraq. This all comes on the heels of testimony on Thursday, where a Pentagon commander had said that there had been dozens and dozens of attacks in Syria over the last year or so that Iran uh, has really pushed back on. But this is a kind of escalation in the situation between the United States and Iran, with the U.S. believing Iran is simply trying to further destabilize the Middle East. Okay, so that's we're just still learning more about that this morning. Two, uh, another story I wanted to ask you about, though, having to do with the U.S. president. This has to do with their the administration's efforts against uh, TikTok, the app. And that seems like a little bit has changed on that this week. Well, yeah, look, there was a hearing yesterday uh, with uh, the TikTok CEO, uh, and it was pretty combative. And in a remarkable thing that we don't see very often, or at least haven't seen very often over the last couple of years, this was a bipartisan attack on TikTok, fearful that the, you know, the, the app that's used by about 150 million Americans uh, is a national security threat. And, and the CEO really tried to push back on this criticism that was coming from both Republicans and Democrats to say that this is safe, that American data is, or that data is simply uh, going to start being moved to a cloud system or a server system that is in the United States. But that in and of itself created uh, a bit of an unanswerable question because there were lawmakers saying, well, look, if you're saying that's going to happen, what's happening to data right now with the firm belief that yeah. either the PRC or people within TikTok are gaining access to American information. Yeah, that seems so bizarre, right? Oh, we're not going to do this anymore. Well, then what are you doing right now? So what are the next steps then for them to do? Is there still talk about banning this? Yeah, look, this is a serious conversation. And uh, there was a, a bit of a press gaggle on Air Force One yesterday uh, with the press secretary on the way to Ottawa. And she was asked about what the administration is still working to do when it comes to TikTok. And while she wouldn't get ahead of what any kind of decision would be, the option of banning TikTok nationwide is still on the table for the Biden administration. Uh, and, you know, Going back to that comment of where he said, well, look, information you know, will be stored on American clouds, but people from within the PRC aren't accessing info now. There were lawmakers that said, well, that's simply just a preposterous claim. Don't lie to us and say that China isn't accessing information. So the White House is watching closely. The National Security Council is watching this closely. And you can imagine that tens, if not hundreds of millions of Americans are watching closely to see if they are about to have their app shut off on their phone. That was a fascinating one. Uh, And also, of course, we have to catch up on uh, what has happened with the former U.S. President Donald Trump. Now, it seems to me he was the one who said he was going to be arrested this week, and everybody waited, 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 and here we are on Friday, and nothing has happened. And look... The reason that the media is in New York this week is because the former president 
kind of pitched and controlled the narrative for the last several days, claiming that that arrest was coming on Tuesday. Interestingly, the district attorney, uh, Alvin Bragg, went really silent this week. We know that the grand jury met on Monday because they heard testimony from uh, a lawyer who was testifying on behalf of Trump. There was a day off given to the panel on Wednesday, and Thursday they dealt with matters not having to do with Donald Trump. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with potentially having to wait until next Monday when they sit again to find out if there's going to potentially be another witness. Is there going to be a vote on an indictment? Is Alvin Bragg even going to bring an indictment? But I think more concerning here, Simi, is overnight, the former president used his social media platform to say that if there is an indictment brought forward and voted on, that quote-unquote death and destruction could be something mm. that follows. And that is that kind of echoed sentiment that we heard in the hours leading up to what took place on January 6th. So there's far more criticism now being placed on the words that Donald Trump is saying, not quite so much on the actions that the former president may have undertaken. Right. Now, this seems to that the, the way he did this, though, talking about how he was going to be arrested seems to be seems to have been very effective for him, though, in terms of fundraising. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, he has made uh, a ton of money off of this uh, this claimed arrest, this false narrative that the DA has put out there saying that uh, Trump did this on purpose. Uh, and, and he's made money off this. Other Republicans have made money off of this. The question is, is the base going to continue to want to roll with Donald Trump if and when these issues pertaining to Stormy Daniels or others continue to pile up beneath him? Or will other Republicans in the race be able to kind of gain control of the narrative? And remember, too, while we're all focused on what's happening in Manhattan, the misclassified or the mishandled classified documents, that is also something that's coming to light today because uh, Donald Trump's lawyer had his attorney-client privilege revoked by a federal judge earlier this week, and he now has to testify against Donald Trump in a Washington courtroom today linked to the Mar-a-Lago scandal. So whatever is happening in Manhattan, while everyone's saying, look, it's not kind of the big deal, it might be a bit of a nothing burger, the situation today with the document scandal, that could be incredibly Ooh. legally perilous for the former president. Okay, all right. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we talked about this next case, but here is the Murdoch family back in the news, even though we know that Alex Murdoch is going to jail for life. What's going on? Yeah. So this goes back to a death that uh, happened a couple of years ago uh, with a teenager who had been found dead in a roadway in South Carolina and had believed to have been uh, a vehicular uh, a vehicular death, essentially. But we've now found out that uh, in the last year or so, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, or SLED, has reopened the investigation, and they believe that this was now potentially a homicide. And they say that there are some potential ties here or similarities or something within their evidence that they haven't released that could tie back to Alex Murdoch, and we don't actually know what it is. We know that this victim's mother uh, has raised uh, a lot of money to try and get her son's body exhumed so that they can carry out further testing and, and further um, uh, kind of try to be able to get some more evidence on it. But ultimately, we don't have, we don't have a, a solid answer as to how this could potentially directly link back to Alex Murdoch, other than knowing that there was a family connection to this, to this teenage victim. But again, it is throwing all eyes back onto this man who's about to spend the rest of his life in prison. And police say the reason they didn't bring this up during his trial is because they were afraid that the influence that the family had would stop other witnesses from being able to come forward. So here, you know, America thought that this crime of the century was wrapped up. It may be kind of unraveling again and reopening in a new direction. Wow. All right. Reggie, thank you so much for that.
Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. It's gearing up to be a big day in Ottawa. U.S. President Joe Biden arrived there yesterday evening, and it's set to be a busy day on Parliament Hill with the Prime Minister, meetings, uh, speaking to the House of Commons. So let's find out more about this visit. Joining us now is Mackenzie Gray, our global news correspondent in Ottawa. Good morning, Mackenzie. Hi, Sammy. How are you doing? I am good, thank you. It sounds like you are going to be busy. What is going on? What's on the agenda today? Well, the big thing is Joe Biden's going to talk to Parliament. He'll be giving a speech, which is kind of traditional for the U.S. president when he comes to give a speech. But it's been a while since we've had one here in Ottawa. Trump didn't show up. Obama was the last one back in 2016. And Biden's been president for basically two years now, and he hasn't come to Ottawa yet. Obviously, COVID put a wrench into some of that. But the prime minister's office have been really hoping to get this visit because traditionally before... The first visit of any president was to Canada, but Joe Biden's been all over the world. Uh, I've been with him at different summits that Justin Trudeau's been at. So it's not like they haven't met, but he hasn't come to Canada yet. Um, So he'll have that speech. He'll have meetings with the prime minister. Uh, He'll be talking to cabinet as well. And then they've got a big fancy dinner tonight at the Aviation Museum here. But Mr. Biden didn't come alone. He brought his wife with him. So Joe Biden's here, too. She's going to be hanging out with Sophie Trudeau today. And the highlight of their day probably is going to be when they go curling. So that sounds like they're having a lot more fun than we're going to have here covering Joe Biden. <laughs> but it does sound like more of a personal visit. Like they're, they've stayed longer. They're, they stayed last night. They had a private dinner with the prime minister and his wife, right? Like this seems like a bit of a lengthy visit. Yeah. Biden came uh, when he was vice president right at the end of the Obama-Biden term right after Trump got elected. So they know each other. They like each other. They see eye to eye on a lot of things. Obviously, with any U.S. Canada president, there is some um, difficulties. But, you know, think back to when Trudeau first got elected and Obama was in. Like, it was a super bromance moment, right? Biden was a part of that, and I think he's trying to kind of recapture that a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, they have a good relationship. So, you know, hang out, have dinner, see the wife and kids. And uh, that's what they've done. Okay. So one of the big agreements uh, that we were supposed to hear about kind of has already leaked, hasn't it? And this has to do with immigration asylum seekers. What is this? Yeah. So it's got to do with what's called the safe third country agreement. And that agreement says that if you cross the Canada-U.S. border, as an example, you're crossing from the U.S. border up into Canada, uh, not a regular place. So you're not crossing where you got to show your passport. You're walking across like in a field. And you say to the border guard when you cross, I'm, I'm um, applying for asylum, you can apply for asylum through the regular system. If you did that at a regular border crossing, you'd be turned back and said, nope, you need to go apply for asylum in the U.S. Why is that a big deal? Roxham Road in Quebec. There's basically a field upstate New York where lots of people are driving right to. In some cases, the mayor of New York is taking migrants who come from Central and South America up to New York. They will pay for their bus ticket to send them to Roxham Road, to send them up into Quebec. And they can do that, and then they're a part of the asylum claim system here. Francois Legault, the premier of Quebec, has said, look, we've had 40,000 people come in. We're at our limit. It's not that we don't want people coming to Quebec. We want to be an open, tolerant society. But we just don't have the social services to have all these people not coming in through the regular immigration stream. So Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau, according to government sources that we've talked to, have come to an agreement to end that which is a huge political win for Justin Trudeau. That was a major problem for him in Quebec. Pierre Polyev, who is not doing well in Quebec, was starting to attack him on that. Uh, and that's a win for Justin Trudeau to get that out of the way. Of oh. course, in regular Canadian fashion, I will say one thing here, Simi. Uh, they won't tell us what the deal is, but of course, <laughs> the Americans will tell their media what the deal is. So the Los Angeles Times is reporting that in exchange for this deal to be done, uh, Canada's going to take 15,000 migrants who are already in the U.S. and bring them to Canada. Uh, we let a million people in last year. So that's a, a really big win for Justin Trudeau to just have 15,000 people come in and have this closed up. 
uh, people in Quebec will be very happy about that. That is just so funny, though. That is very typical. You're right, right? They they tell the American media all about it, and we're still waiting for details. Don't, uh, I could do a whole interview with you about that, Sydney. Don't get me started. You know what? I, one day, one day, Mackenzie, we will. <laughs> uh, what are some of the other topics that are expected to be discussed? Uh, Haiti's going to be a big one, and that's more contentious. The Americans are saying, look, if you want to deal with migration, Justin Trudeau, the way to deal with it is to keep people in the country that they're in. It's a pretty reasonable solution. But in Haiti, which is a, a country where a lot of the migrants, particularly going to Quebec, uh, were coming from, they, that was their uh, end destination because of French, uh, it's a disaster right now. Gangs control large parts of uh, the country, including the capital, Port-au-Prince. The government's falling apart. The police is falling apart. It's a very bad situation. The U.S. has said, look, send in a security force to help quell the situation, guys. Justin Trudeau doesn't want to do that. The argument is there's no political appetite in Haiti to get that done and that there needs to be a policing solution. So Justin Trudeau said, look, we'll help out with the policing. We'll give them tons of money, which Canada and the U.S. are already the two top contributors for foreign aid to Haiti by a mile. Uh, and, you know, this needs to be a Haitian solution, not a Canada-U.S., you know, coalition, the willing situation solution to deal with that. So that'll be an issue. Don't expect any real resolution on that. I'd be surprised if there was. Uh, but that is something that is definitely going to be brought up. Of course, the economy is going to be a big thing that they talk about, too. Anytime, you know, president and the prime minister meet, that's going to be the conversation. Uh, pretty much every second day you hear from cabinet talking about electric vehicles. Uh, the most recent thing they've announced is in southwestern Ontario, a Volkswagen plant is going to be there. A big concern of the government is that Canada is going to be left behind in the electric vehicle uh, setup that we have compared to what the current setup for the auto sector is, where something, you know, a muffler gets made in Detroit, uh, it can easily cross back over to Windsor to get put into the body of the car and then get shipped back to Detroit to be painted at the end. That kind of, you know, uh, you know, easy free movement of goods between the borders is something they want to keep. But to do that, you need to have the industry in Canada. Uh, the states have dumped tons of money into these kind of sectors in the Inflation Reduction Act, which actually doesn't have a lot to do with reducing inflation, more about trying to bring jobs back to America. Uh, that's a key imperative for Justin Trudeau in southwest Ontario. A lot of votes there, flows between conservatives and liberals consistently, uh, and that is a major driver of the Canadian economy that they want to keep going into the future as, as cars transition. Right. Okay, Mackenzie, good luck today. You're going to be busy. Enjoy yourself. Thanks, Evie. We'll talk to you. <laughs> okay, that's Mackenzie Gray, our global national correspondent in Ottawa, talking about the meeting today between the Prime Minister and U.S. President Joe Biden. There is a lot going on, as he mentioned, lots of items on the agenda and an address to the House of Commons. And for complete coverage, keep it tuned in right here for the very latest on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Time now for us to check in with our Vancouver Whitecaps and coach of the team, Vanny Sartini, is with us now. Good morning, coach. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. When are you off to Minnesota? Uh, we are leaving today right, right after training. We play tomorrow there at, uh, well, it's going to be 5.30 in Vancouver. It's going to be 7.30 there in Minnesota. Yes. Okay. All right. So you've got to get the team going here, right? Because you've had a couple of draws. You really need to get something going here. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's uh, we're actually performing well. We we the last two games were really good against Dallas and against the, the Galaxy. We probably deserve to something more, but yes. we we just tied the game, and uh, you know we need to continue. But and uh, we need to 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 get this win because after uh, after Minnesota we have three games. Uh, uh, in a row at uh, at home here at BC Place, so there's a huge chance to make points uh, uh, here in Vancouver. So arriving with uh, 
a little bit of uh, I would say of uh, of a push with uh, with three points in Minnesota would be fantastic. Right. Okay. How do you like? How do you address that with the team then, Coach? Right? Because I'm sure there's a little bit of frustration involved too for the players. Because as you say, when you watch the games, you're like, man, they deserve to win that game. How do you yeah. how do you get them? To, they got to keep pushing until they get that breakthrough. Well, you know, the the the, the most important thing in well, in soccer, but I think in sports in general, that you have that you still have the I would say the belief of the of the players and the the will of the players to to do what we are we're working on. So we actually, you know, we 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 work we we watched a lot of clips on on Wednesday on all the things that we did well during the game and how we are actually developing our our style of play and uh, you know it's uh, you need to be a little bit of a broken record sometimes and telling them hey guys it's 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 okay the the win is coming the 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 team is performing well and uh, and to continue working on uh, and what you are what, uh, what you're doing so it's uh, it's kind it's a kind of uh, i would say reminding them that uh, that we are on the on the right path and uh, uh, really trust in the process. Right. Do you ever think about maybe shaking up the routine? Uh, yeah, I thought about, like, uh, I did a, a couple little change uh, after the game that uh, that we lost in San Jose, so that they went, uh, uh, they, they went well uh, in terms of my routine to, uh, to, to, to go to the game. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping it for... Uh, for Minnesota, I'm still. I'm. I'm, I'm gonna use the same. Uh, uh, the, the the same uh, the same routine for the game. That uh, unfortunately for me, because it's uh, it's tiring, includes also working out in the morning of the game. But it's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's tiring for sure. <laughs> but you, all, I know we talked about this last week about the places you go to eat. So you're going to St. Paul, Minnesota. Yes. Now, what do you? Is there a great place for you to go there too, or maybe you need to find a new place? Maybe that's part of the new I, routine. I, I will find a new. I will find a new place because uh, last year I went to um, kind of a pizza place, and I, it wasn't great. And also, we lost when we were in Minnesota. So yeah, yeah, you need sure, to find a new place for sure. That's uh, I would say that's my task uh, uh, tonight in the in the hotel to look for. Uh, to look for a good uh, a good place around the uh, around the hotel for uh, for tomorrow's lunch. Well, I, I think you can go a little bit farther than just around the hotel, though, right? Like you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can, I can. But you know, bit. it's uh, it's it, it, it's still game day, and everything can happen. You don't know. Maybe you maybe you get stuck in traffic, and the, and the team has no has no coach for the oh. for the start. It's better to have no coach than to have no players. But you know, that's true. <laughs> that is true. So this, would you, do you do you think this one is particularly important, though, here, coach? Just because, as you point out. Like you need to get something started, right? So, is this, this would you call this a critical game? I would say uh, not a critical game, but very important. Uh, I I think that uh, it's uh, every game when uh, you want to, uh, as you say, get started, become a little critical. And uh, I say that I would say that it's important. And the critical, I would say, week would be the next week. So I'm gonna already. Uh, anticipate the thing because then from from April first to April eight we'll play three games in a row in, at BC Play, so that will be the critical week to have uh, France at home and to really uh, put the season in the 
in the in the way that we want. Right, and the bus went a lot of travel at the beginning of the season, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was uh, like uh, again we Honduras, LA. Yeah, uh, we went to San Jose. So you know, it's uh, it's good that after this game for a couple of weeks you're gonna stay home. So that's uh, that's not bad. Okay, good. Well, I look forward to talking to you next week and go out and explore, find some fantastic place in yeah, St. Paul. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I'll rate. I you. want to hear one, one to five stars. And I'll yes, uh, let's get a rating system going. Listen, good luck, coach. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll talk to you next week. That is Vanny Sartini, coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. They are in St. Paul, Minnesota tomorrow to play. Uh, Their game is at 5.30 our time, as coach mentioned there. And so you can check that out, of course, as always on AM 7.30. Catch those Vancouver Whitecaps games. And as the coach said, they need this one, right? They've had a couple of draws. They've had a loss and then two draws. In, in their MLS play. They did really well in, in other play, right, in the Champions play, but not so much in MLS play. So they need this. Time for a win. And uh, you can, again, listen to that game tomorrow on AM 7.30. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about libraries this morning because these days they've become about more than just going somewhere to get a book to read. Nowadays, libraries, it seems, end up in the headlines because of attempts to ban certain books. In the U.S. in particular, this is becoming more and more common. Well, joining us now to talk about this is James Turk, director of the Centre for Free Expression at the Toronto Metropolitan University. James, thanks for being here this morning. Oh, it's my pleasure. Nice to talk with you. Is this becoming more common, or does it just feel like we're getting more of these stories in the headlines? Oh, it's becoming more common. Uh, It's something that's gone on for the history of libraries. Uh, People often will see something in a public library that they personally don't like or find offensive or don't want their children to read and say, well, nobody should be able to read it. You have to get rid of the book. So there's been a history of that, but that has exploded in uh, recent years uh, in the United States, as we've seen, and it's starting to explode in Canada as well. So what is the difference, do you think, this time with all these stories versus all the times in the past that we have heard this? Well, I, th- I think that uh, the, uh, a big part of it is as a result of social media. That is, uh, in the past, somebody would come across a book that they didn't like, as I say, and, and would feel that nobody else should be able to read that because they find it offensive. Uh, but now... In, in just instead of just saying that privately to the library and going through the process libraries have where books can be reconsidered, uh, they take to social media. They start petitions on social media. Uh, everything that's happening in, in the United States is available through social media as well as the news. So people who have similar views to Ron DeSantis or the, the folks in Texas or other places where there's a major push to censor books, uh, say, oh, geez, we could try that here. And there have been a number of groups popping up in Canada uh, launching concerted drives to get various kinds of books out of the library. Here's what I wonder. Does banning books actually work? I mean, if the goal of it is to prevent people from reading that book, doesn't it actually do the opposite by kind of highlighting that book? Uh, it does indeed. Uh, one of the... Uh, there's, you know, in the history of the world, there's been a long... Uh, commitment of many people to censorship as a way of bringing about social change. Uh, and we, you know, we just stop people from speaking. We stop uh, people from reading uh, things w- that we find offensive. It never works. It's always, uh, it always fails as a way of bringing about the change they want. And often, as you're suggesting, and I agree, uh, it's counterproductive. So 
when you ban a book, you draw a lot of attention to it, uh, and if anything, it dramatically increases the readership of the book because people are curious, why, why are people trying to ban this book? So just as a way of, of dealing with something you don't like, it, it's a very foolish way to deal with things. Right. This must be putting libraries on the defensive, it feels like. Like, are there rules about the types of books that end up on library shelves? Yes, libraries uh, in Canada, in the United States, and around the world have seen what they call intellectual freedom as a fundamental foundation of the library. That is uh, uh, based on the, Internet, uh, the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted by more than 150 countries in 1948. It recognizes intellectual freedom as one of the fundamental human rights. And libraries see their role uh, as a public institution to be a place where anyone in the community is welcome, anyone in the community can uh, access their collections, their space, their programs if they choose, and that they have things there that would be of interest to members of the community. And given the diversity of communities, that means they have lots of different things. And, uh, you know, an old joke is if a library re uh, removed everything that was offensive to some member of, of their community, they'd have virtually nothing left in the library. Uh, I mean, the library is to be a place where if we're interested in an issue, we can go read about it, uh, whether to agree with it or to read about it so we know how to fight against people who are advocating what the author is doing. Um, and so the libraries have this strong philosophical commitment to being there for the whole community. And they assess what goes into their collection, what programs they put on by a a series of, of uh, criteria that are spelled out in their policies that they want to make sure that uh, the book will be of interest to the community, that that it's uh, published by a reputable publisher, that it's a, uh, you know, a, a decent version of whatever it's purporting to be. What happens though when we start having this kind of very heated discussion about banning books? Like what happens to society when we get to that point? Well, the discussion about banning books is not the problem. The problem is if we then go on to actually ban books. Uh, that, uh, it, 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 at the end of the day, it really undermines democracy. Uh, democracy, you know, people talk about democracy as being about the rule of law. Democracy is really about an unending public discussion, public discourse about what's legitimate and what's not legitimate. And the majority government come to power, can pass laws that we have to, uh, obey, but we never lose our right to challenge them, to question them, uh, to raise uh, critical perspectives on those, and and uh, that ability to discuss things is is undermined if we say, well, you don't have access to this information, you can't read that, you can't look at that book. It it, it raises questions that I find offensive, and therefore I'm going to organize to make sure you can't read it. Uh, that inevitably leads to a very authoritarian. Uh, approach because it's saying somebody in the society has a right to determine what others can see and can't see. Uh, and that, that's really what authoritarian authoritarianism is really about. Uh, so uh, libraries understand that they're a truly public institution. I would argue they're one of the last genuinely public institutions in our society where most everything has been securitized or privatized, whereas a public library is maybe the only place other than a public park where anybody in the community can go in, whether they're the richest person in town or a homeless person, they can spend all day, they don't have to pay money, they're welcome, um, and they have access to a variety of resources that uh, uh, help put the foundation into democracy. 
Do you think this is still kind of protected here in Canada? Do we do a good job in this country of, of kind of drawing the line on that? Well, the libraries in Canada, like I must say, the libraries in the United States, are absolutely committed to intellectual freedom. Uh, they want um, they want to ensure that they are available to everybody in the community and that people aren't discriminated against by their political views, by their ethnicity, by their race, or by their economic status or anything else. So the libraries are absolutely committed to that and, and have been quite successful to date in resisting uh, attempts at censorship. But we have a growing... Uh, I mean, what's changed is uh, the aggressiveness by which people are trying to censor things. So I say that's, that's really been uh, empowered by social media and the ability of people who have similar views and want to get rid of books to, to uh, connect with each other and, and uh, uh, organize to that end. Uh, so their libraries are grappling uh, with how to deal with that um, uh, as the pressure. Uh, I mean, we have examples going across the country right now in New Brunswick, for example, they've had more challenges to books in their libraries in the last month than they've had in the entire history of the library system in the province. Um, In uh, British Columbia and in Manitoba, there are organized groups uh, that uh, are making concerted uh, demands that library gets get rid of books, uh, calling on politicians to undermine the funding of libraries if they don't get rid of these books. Um, And many of the books that are most under attack are books for young adults and for children uh, sex education books for children, uh, books that uh, sh- show uh, LGBTQ families or deal with issues of of, uh, of sex and sex education. Uh, they, you know, the, uh, these folks who are really pressing aggressively want to get rid of all those. And on the other hand, there are progressive people who say, "Well, you can't really have Huckleberry Finn in your collection because uh, it uses the N word uh, or." Um, you know, there, there's a variety of, of uh, books that are, are really important historically that they feel, well, you know, given how we view things today, they shouldn't, nobody should be able to read those because they might give them bad ideas. Right. So uh, there can be challenges from both ends of the perspective, both ends of the political spectrum, as it were. But in the end, first, it doesn't work. It undermines democracy and it draws more attention to the very thing that they claim that they're opposed to. So true. Uh, Listen, thanks for the conversation this morning. Appreciate it. Nice to talk to you. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the issue of wrongful convictions. They don't just happen in the United States. You know, there are some very famous cases here in Canada where the wrong people were convicted, and it was years before we realized that. In fact, there is a registry of wrongful convictions in this country and people who work on them continuously. Well, Kent Roach is a legal scholar who does that work as well. He's a professor of law at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law and the author of a book called Wrongfully Convicted. Joins us now to talk more about that. Good morning, Kent. Good morning, Simi. How common is this, do you think, in Canada? Well, I mean, we've uh, recorded 83 
cases where the wrongful convictions have been remedied. This begs the question of how many are out there that have not been remedied. And of course, even if you assume the criminal justice system gets it right 99% of the time, and most humans make errors more frequently than that, that there would still be thousands of wrongful convictions that are not corrected. How hard is it to overturn a wrongful conviction in this country? Well, I mean, perhaps not as hard as in the United States, but it's not easy. So basically, uh, our definition are cases where new evidence is admitted on appeal. And so once you're convicted, you may be imprisoned and lose your job, and you have to find new evidence that perhaps the police didn't find or didn't even look for and introduce that to the court. And of course, if all of your appeals are exhausted, you're only final remedy is to convince the federal minister of justice to order a new trial or a new appeal. And does that happen? Well, it happens about once a year. So, I mean, there's legislation now before Parliament that would replace the Minister of Justice's role with a new independent commission. And so there's hope that more people will apply and have faith in a new independent commission, which would have public funds and powers to search for new evidence. Right. There have been some pretty famous cases, though, haven't there, Kent, about wrongful conviction in this country? Yes, and, and, you know, one of the reasons why we did the registry and one of the reasons that we did the book is, you know, no, you know, I, I mean, we should remember the David Milgards, the Donald Marshalls, but there's a lot of people that are not household names, and they and their families have suffered really irreparable harm. So one of our purposes was just to lay it out there that mistakes are made and that they have real-life consequences. i tell you, the one that really sticks in my head that I remember uh, from when I was young was Guy Paul Moran. Yes, no, and, you know, I mean, Guy Paul Moran was one of the lucky ones in a sense in that he was exonerated by DNA. But if we're waiting for the certainty of a DNA exoneration in most wrongful convictions, will never be corrected because, you know, less than 20% of all criminal cases involve DNA. And, of course, if you assume that the police, <coughs> that the police will... Um, pardon me, <clears throat> that the police will collect and test DNA. Eventually, DNA exonerations will go by the wayside, but that doesn't mean that wrongful convictions will. Right. Okay. So I guess, is there anything that we can build into the system then, or are there ways to improve our system so that this does not happen as often? Well, I mean, I think it starts with good policing and policing that doesn't narrow in on the usual suspects, because there's a huge issue of discrimination. So 16% of the wrongfully convicted in our registry are Indigenous. And so you might say, well, they're getting remedies. But as you know, over a third of our prison population is Indigenous. So you would expect that a third of the wrongfully convicted might also be Indigenous, even not assuming discrimination. So I think, you know, we all need to be aware of this and we all have to try to internalize the presumption of innocence, which is unfortunately somewhat contrary to human nature. So what can we build in? Is there, are there new rules that we can put into place? Is it better training? What would, what would improve the yeah. situation? Well, I mean, you know, there's 
prevention, which is one issue, and there is remedy. And so the federal government has, I think, to its credit, uh, a bill uh, that will create this new commission. But I think it's an open question whether the bill will be passed before an election, whether it will be reintroduced after an election. And even more importantly, we could have a commission, but if it's not properly funded and properly properly staffed, it's not going to be able to remedy the wrongful convictions that indeed the Supreme Court of Canada has told us are inevitable in any system run by humans. Now, Kent, I know you you work on this, right? These are cases that you work on. Does, is it frustrating for you as well to sometimes perhaps come across a case where you go, this is so egregious, how was this allowed to happen? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's frustrating. It's, you know, basically having to rely upon volunteers, whether it's at the UBC Innocence, Clinic, Innocence Project, which has done wonderful work, or, or Innocence Canada. Uh, and, uh, you know, often the wrongfully convicted do not receive compensation, and they're completely devastated by, by, by this. So, so, yes, I mean, it is frustrating. I, I, I remember in the Guy Paul Moran inquiry, which I participated in, uh, was a long time ago, and still some of its recommendations have not been implemented. And we haven't even had a public inquiry on a wrongful conviction since 2008 when David Milgard's in, inquiry was finished. And you know, one of the reasons that we've done the registry and that we've written the book is that we want to keep this issue alive. Okay, and and does it do that? Do you find that, do Canadians, I mean, we don't tend to get outraged over a lot, but when we do, boy, we really get going. Is this something that Canadians get outraged about? Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I think there was a lot of sympathy with the in part because it's named after the late David and Joyce Milgard, but I worry that younger generations don't know this. I mean, the Tragically Hip talked about it being late-breaking news on the CBC, but, you know, it was a long time ago, and more more recent uh, wrongful convictions, whether it's Ivan Henry or Connie Oakes, are not the household names that David Milgard rightly is. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I think some of it is that the media is facing challenge. Uh, we used to have investigative reporters that could specialize in miscarriages of justice. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, without the, you know, a big bang of a DNA exoneration, uh, people are, you know, uh, unfortunately uh, losing interest and not paying attention the way that really we all should as citizens. But yet it's also an era where, you know, proliferation of talking about true crime, whether it's podcasts or books, or uh, there seems to be a fascination with these cases. A lot of podcasts in the United States focus on, on wrongful convictions, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, certainly, you know, one of the most popular ones uh, eventually led to That's right. uh, yeah. to an exoneration. But there's there's a danger if we see these things as entertainment, because, uh, I mean, they are human tragedies. And there's also a danger if we think of these things as whodunit. So one of the things that our registry has uh, recorded, and this is also consistent with the American registry, is a third of wrongful convictions are about crimes that never happened. So 
So if you're waiting for the last chapter for the real perpetrator to be revealed, it's never going to come. And of course, crimes that didn't happen, what I call imagined crimes in my book, are cases where we let our suspicions get the best of us. And so I worked on some of the Charles Smith uh, um, uh, cases in Ontario, and those were cases where um, Charles Smith had suspicions about uh, caregivers of children, particularly if they were racialized or if they were single mothers. But those suspicions were allowed to grow into murder convictions and entirely rational pleas to manslaughter in order to avoid mandatory life imprisonment that comes with murder. So, you know, with imagined crimes, which are a third of our remedied wrongful convictions, we really have to look deep inside all of our psyches and say, why are we so suspicious of some people that we're creating crimes out of accidents and suicides and the like? So interesting. Ken, thanks for your time on that. Uh, you're most welcome. Kent Roach is a professor of law at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law. He investigates wrongful convictions across Canada. He's actually written a book called Wrongfully Convicted, and you can check it out now.